Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Okay, whether you're at home or in person, uh, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start around verse uh, 21 or so this morning. We have stepped into a new sermon series last week entitled Kingdom Come, in which we are taking time to study Jesus's teaching given on the Mount of Olives uh, that we call the Sermon on the Mount. I've been there, I've stood on the Mount of Olives, and it is a beautiful place, and Jesus would have been standing there on this mount, well, it's not really a mount, it's more like a kind of a tall hill, but if we called it the Sermon on the Really Tall Hill, it wouldn't have the same sort of presence, right, as the Sermon on the Mount uh, does. And so behind him, as he stood on the Sermon of the, uh, on, the, on the Mount, as he stood on the Mount of Olives, behind him, people would have been able to see the whole city of Jerusalem, the, the, the Mount of Olives, the sort of right next to uh, where, uh, where Jer- Jerusalem is and the temple. So behind Jesus, the people would have seen the holy city of Jerusalem and the temple sprawling in the distance. And savvy as Jesus is, he chose this location for a reason. He, uh, he is standing in front of the ancient symbols of the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom that is supposed to be a theocracy with God as its king, and, and a law that comes from the mouth of God himself. And, and the people of this kingdom are supposed to be the people who have received the mandate from God to be his people in, in the world and to be a blessing to other nations. And he's describing for the Israelites who had gathered there in front of him what it should be like in the kingdom of God. And this description of the kingdom of God is really upside down from the very political, legalistic, stratified culture that they were actually experiencing at that time in the holy city of God within their own religious structures and with the Romans who ruled them. So so to get a picture, an idea of what this must have been like to experience the Sermon on the Mount, a contemporary example of this would be Martin Luther King's Martin Luther King Jr. speech, I Have a Dream. I know you've seen the iconic pictures of the march on Washington and the sea of people on the National Mall. And he chose this location for his speech very purposefully. I've stood on that very spot as well and looked out um, into, into the distance. And he would have been there with the backdrop of Lincoln, the great emancipator looming behind him, and the obelisk of George Washington in front, and Jefferson, who wrote many of our nation's authoritative documents off to the right. And King referenced the, the founding leaders and teachings of America, and then he corrected the current application of those principles. He said, five score years ago, that's how he began his talk. Of course, that, rec- that goes back to the Gettysburg Address of, from Lincoln, who was right behind him. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbol, symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. And then he goes on to say, but 100 years later, the Negro is still not free. He goes into saying, this is what was said, but today things are not in line with what, uh, with the spirit and the heart of, of the law. So, 
a very similar situation with what Jesus is doing here on the Sermon on the Mount with Jerusalem and the temple behind him. And so Jesus, like Martin Luther King, has a crowd gathered and hanging on his every word. They're entranced by the powerfully symbolic environment. And he starts by saying that he has come to fulfill the law of God. So he's elevated this, this moment to a, to a really poignant moment in this place, at this moment, saying, I have come to fulfill the law of God. You can read that in verse 17. So he has them at this moment in the palm of his hand. They're poised to listen to what he has to say. And he says this in verse 22. I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. Wait, what? What? We, you came, Jesus, you came all this way. You gathered us here in this special place. You have our rapt attention. And you say, if I'm driving and someone cuts me off and I call him a jerk, that I could eat supper with Satan? Like that seems a bit disproportional. Um, and maybe there are more important things that we can talk about, like our political situation here or the pandemic that we're probably a part of, going to be a part of 2,000 years from now. It, that There seems to be something more that could have happened here in this moment. So why does Jesus use this time to address anger? Why is anger so important? And why does he liken anger to murder? I think we need to listen closely here because the implications are pretty direct for us and many others in our present culture who are quick to anger, swift to judgment, and extremely flippant in our willingness to insult other people. So in addressing anger, we need to clear up a few things, okay? First of all, not all anger is wrong or sinful. Anger is an attribute of God. We call it the wrath of God, and we are made in his image. We see Jesus get angry on a number of occasions. He even at one point makes a whip and chases people out of the temple and turns over their tables. And if you ask me, that's a little Bruce Banner-ish right there. And, uh, and Jesus, John the Baptist, and Paul, among others, call people a fool. Even Gandalf calls people fools, right? So there's got to be, there's got to be something that's different here. If, if on one hand you say, if you call your brother a fool, you could be in, in, uh, in danger of the fire of hell. But then Paul and Jesus and John the Baptist call people fools. Paul even says, be angry, but in your anger do not sin. So not all anger is sinful, but Jesus is not talking about all anger or rage here. He's talking about unjustified anger or rage. Now, before you get excited about your own anger and think, well, I'm pretty clear here because every, uh, everyone that I get mad at, I have good reason for. So, um, so I, I should be in the clear for the rest of this time of Jesus's talk. Well, that assumption is exactly what Jesus is challenging here in the Sermon on the Mount. So let's get into it. Let's, let's work through anger together. And so Let's define it first. What is, what is anger? Anger is a response to a perceived violation or offense. So there's two parts of that. What is being violated and what is the appropriate response to that violation? In this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is giving commentary on the Ten Commandments. That's why he says there in verse 21, you have heard it said to the people of old. So he's talking about the law of God, and the Ten Commandments that were given through Moses to the people. 
And so in this section, he's giving commentary on the Ten Commandments. And specifically in this passage, he's talking about the Sixth Commandment, which is, you shall not murder. Now, there's a difference here between you shall not kill and you shall not murder. Although both are horrible, the Bible specifically condemns unjustified killing. We see this in the Old, Old Testament as the same law that says you shall not murder also gives instructions for capital punishment and war. And although the modern implication of those two things are a little bit more than we can cover in about 25 minutes this morning, the point here is that just as the sixth commandment is against unjustified killing, Jesus is talking about in this passage unjustified anger. So that should lead us to the question then of how can we tell if our anger is righteous and justified or if it's sinful? Well, if anger is a response to a violation in any situation where anger is involved, we can ask two questions. What is being violated and what is the appropriate response? So in looking at what is being violated, righteous anger comes as a response when the perfect law of God is violated. That's what, where righteous anger comes from. Because God's law is what leads to righteousness. It leads to life and flourishing and safety and health. And in the end, it leads to the glory of God. And therefore, violation of that law leads to damage and hurt and death and oppression. So these things should make us angry. Racism, abuse, infidelity, theft, lies, corruption. These things should make us angry because they make God angry. And there's only one person who is always correct, fair, and always just, and that is God himself. So if we want to know what should make us angry, we need to look at the one who's always right in his anger, and that's God. However, if we're honest, most of the time when you and I get angry, it is not because the glory of God has been tarnished and his holy law has been violated. Oftentimes what we do is that we make our own standard of how others need to act and behave that conforms to our own opinions and ultimately leads to glory for us. And, and so here's the kicker. Here's, here's why we're starting to understand why Jesus used this moment to talk about anger. Because if we do that, if we become the lawmaker and in showing that our way is the way that brings about goodness and, and, and truth and righteousness, then we have put ourselves in the position of God. We get to make the law. We get to give our judgment. And the problem is, is that we're fallible. We make mistakes. This is also why it's so embarrassing when we get angry about something and we, when we find out we were wrong about what we were angry at. Um, it's hard to come back and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Because that's admitting that we were not omniscient, not sovereign, and not God. And our own glory is tarnished. This is the pride that is at the root of original sin itself, where we think that we can be a better God than who God is. And we prove that over and over in our anger. If you saw the viral video that came out a number of years ago um, with, with this really adorable British girl um, who was upset at her sister, whose name was apparently Rachel. And if you've ever seen this, she gives like this little vlog where she gets mad because her sister has borrowed um, her, uh, her iPad charger. Um, and now her iPad charger is not working. And so she gives this, just look it up sometime. Just look, just Google uh, that uh, Rachel is mad. Just, I'm sure it'll come up. And so she's on, she's on the, on camera 
extremely angry. And she's just going, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, because you used my iPad charger, and now my iPad charger is used to being in your iPad, and so it doesn't even know my iPad, and so, uh, and so because you've borrowed my iPad, I can't charge my, my iPad, and she's just going on, and the reason that it's hilarious is because she's so angry, and you're sitting there listening and going, that's not how this works at all. That's not how chargers work. That's not how, that's not how, this, how this shakes down at all. And she's extremely angry. And the problem is, is that if we could look at ourselves according to the standard of God, we look pretty silly oftentimes in our anger as well. So what is being violated is, in the, fir- is the first question. Is it God's law and God's righteousness? Or is it our own law and our own righteousness? And then the second, what is the appropriate response to that violation? Anger leads to punitive action. In other words, it leads to punishment or retribution. Now, whether you carry that out or whether you just think about it in your head and, uh, and think about the argument you, you're going to have with them, and every time you think about it in your head, you always win the argument, right? Uh, and uh, so whether it's just happening in your head or whether you actually take action and go out in, in retribution or punishment, anger leads to punitive action. And just like the development of the standard, God is the only one who is qualified to dictate proper discipline. Now, that's not to say that we don't combat what is evil or protest what needs to be changed or discipline our children. But when we do so, we should do so as agents of God. So our standard should be God's standard. And our behavioral response should be in submission to how God has commanded us to behave. So when we're angry, when Paul says, be angry, but in your anger, do not sin. He's saying, be angry about the right things and be angry in the right way. So if you have a short temper and you are quick to anger, I would ask you, does your anger come from your deep love for the Lord and your dedication to his truth? And you cannot stand to see that violated. Or have you put yourself in the position of God who has the authority to set the standards others need to submit to? And if you say, oh, yes, my anger only comes because of my passion for the word of God, First of all, I would tell you, you have some pretty significant blind spots in your life. And then I would ask you, if you have such a passion for adherence to the truth of God, are you submitting the actions of your anger to the word of God as well? We can take things that are righteous and godly and then respond in an ungodly way, which makes us just as guilty as the object of our anger. So, How are we then supposed to be appropriately angry as Christians? If we've said we can be angry at times, but how do we do that appropriately? What does godly anger look like? First, we need to recognize that our anger has significant meaning. Anger is not meaningless. And therefore, with our anger comes a great responsibility. This is why Jesus is saying, if you are angry. It's not just about murder. It's about are you angry that leads to, uh, to murder. Jesus is speaking into a culture that he wants them to understand that their anger is the source of their behavior. And it's not okay to simply have all of this anger built up as long as you don't cross the line into murder. But the other 99% of your anger is fine. He's saying it's a matter of changing the attitudes of our hearts that would even lead to murder. 
That's why he says that anger has repercussions, that you might have to go before the council or go before the tribunal. Like, we get it. If somebody murders somebody, they have to go before a judge. And we say, yes, that is right. If somebody murders somebody, they should be charged. They should go before a judge. They should get sentenced. Well, Jesus is saying that it's anger that needs that kind of accountability as well. The primary problem is not just the act of murder, but the condition of our hearts that would present ourselves in the position of God as lawmaker and judge and executioner. And in our current culture, we place such a high degree of authority on how we feel that if we perceive a violation, that anything we do in response is acceptable. But friends, we cannot be angry at anything we want to and respond in any way that we want to. We are neither the executive nor judicial branch, and we are certainly not God. We must submit both our anger and our behavior to God. So you can be angry, I'll say again, but be angry as an agent of God, angry at the things that makes God angry, and expressing that anger in a godly way. So here's the, here's the test that I would bring to you. Be Be angry at the right things. Ask, when you are angry, why am I angry? Is my anger justified by the word of God for the glory of God and for the flourishing of others? Or do I want people to conform to my standard for my glory and my flourishing? And then as you're figuring out how do you act in that anger that you are in, um, examine your anger as you express it in the right ways. There are times for making whips and turning over tables, but those times are few. Listen, this is, this is of first importance. This is, this is extremely important. Hear what I'm saying here. God is quite clear throughout the scripture, Old Testament and New, that vengeance does not belong to us. Our response to anger should never be vengeance, should never be, well, they deserve for me to get back at them, or they owe me something, and so I get to take something from them. Our response to our anger should never be vengeance. If we're angry at the right things, that it's ultimately God who has been sinned against, and final judgment belongs to him. If we're angry at the right things, then he is more significantly offended than we are. So we can take the need for vengeance off of our plates. It's not that justice won't happen if we don't bring it. Justice will happen at the hands of God, who is a better judge of what justice should look like than you will ever be. So we can take the need for vengeance and the responsibility of bringing the the final punishment off our plates. Relax. We don't have to be in that role. We do not need to react in anger for the purpose of vengeance. And Hebrews tells us that God disciplines us to restore us. So out of anger and discipline, our hope, just as God's hope is, is always for repentance and restoration. Anger should always be about, should always come about with the hope of repentance and restoration, not destruction. So Jesus is turning things on their heads here with this teaching because he's saying that our angry response does not have to be violent, but instead can be merciful. We don't have to insult people because there's no hope of restoration in that. That's pronouncing judgment. You are a this. That's not with the hope 
of restoration, with the hope of healing. That is proclaiming and judging in a place that we are not able to proclaim and judge. We don't have to harm people in our anger. We don't have to, we don't have to pop off at people on social media. Can we just make a rule that you should never be on social media angry? Maybe ever be on social media. That's a different sermon for a different time. We don't have to insult people because there's no hope of restoration and we don't have to harm people. Jesus is showing us another way, grace and mercy and love. Paul says this in Romans 12, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Listen, if you're into the Enneagram stuff, I'm an eight, okay? If you like Myers-Briggs, I'm an ENTJ. If you like the DISC profile, I'm a D. And so when it comes to anger and judgment, I'm comfortable there. And I think if they would just trust me with this, that with anger and judgment, the world would be a much better place. But what we have to recognize is that we don't have to be the bringer of justice and judgment and think that if we don't bring it, it won't happen. To trust that justice and judgment do happen, but that they belong to God. And our role is about healing and restoration. We can abhor what is evil and be angry about it, but we can be angry in a loving way, knowing that justice will ultimately be served by God himself. Let me give an example here. God's not just concerned about big injustices like murder. Um, He also cares about what happens in our family. So if you're a parent and you're listening and you're thinking, is he saying that I can never be angry with my kid again? Or if you're a teenager and you're listening and you're thinking, oh man, Do I have some more ammunition for my arguments with my parents about whether their curfew is godly or not? Slow down, you see, because God has laid out not just the principles for us, but he has has laid out how we should interact with one another as well. And so if he's expounding upon the sixth commandment here, the fifth commandment is also true. Honor your mother and father so that it may go well with you. So mothers and fathers can make rules that they deem proper for the safety and flourishing of their children. And their children are called by God himself to honor them, even if they don't understand them. That was for my family that's watching online. So we can get get angry at our kids when they violate these rules. However, at the same time, we have a responsibility as parents that the rules should truly be made wisely with the flourishing of our child in mind, just as God's law is for the flourishing of his children. Arbitrary, exasperating, petty rules that are made out of pride are not okay, even for us as parents, because we should be looking to God as our guide and model. So parents can discipline their children just as God disciplines us, but that must be done in a godly manner as well. This is what anger in a loving and godly way looks like. Be angry about the right things in the right way. Ultimately, Jesus came to show that, if the, that the point of our righteous anger is to restore order in submission to God's just truth, just truth for the glory of God and for the flourishing of the people. That's what anger is about. It's, it's, it's recalibrating. It's, re, it's, re, it's recorrecting so that we're lined up with the glory of God and that there is more flourishing um, in the world. That's That's what our anger should be about, correction. And so we should be slow to anger and then then quick to bring peace. 
yes, there are times for discussions and discipline and even the use of force for protection, but both what makes us angry and how we behave in light of that anger must reflect the justice of God and his love and his grace and his mercy. Because this is the way that Jesus showed us how to be angry. Because if there's someone who has, who has the right to be angry, it's God himself. For all the things that we have done and all the things that we have left undone, for what we have made of his creation, for how we interact with one another, for violating his holy laws. He has every just right to be angry with us and to deal swiftly and harshly with us. But how does God respond? He becomes one of us in the person of Jesus Christ to take our sins upon himself to absorb the wrath that was ours to receive, to pay our penalty in our stead, to win a victory over death so that we could live. While we were yet sinners, the scripture says, Jesus died for us. And so how do we bring this model into our anger? to be angry about the right things, to be angry in the right ways, to be loving always, to be quick to mercy, to be quick to grace. You don't have to be a trained theologian or a seasoned preacher to see the clear application of this text in our current time. As we approach an extremely contested election, we must be different than the world in our anger. Are we getting angry for the right reasons and expressing that anger in the right ways? When we engage in politics as Christians, our standards of right and wrong are not red or blue, but are based on the word of God. Our behavior and how we treat political opponents is not based on what we see modeled by pundits or in televised debates. We look to Jesus as our guide and our model. In our current culture, why and how we are angry will be one of the most effective and powerful witnesses of the gospel and the goodness of God. So let's be different, church. Let's be a people of justice and of grace and mercy who are known for our love even in our anger. Let's be angry at the right things and be angry in the right ways, always being quick to mercy and abounding in love that God would receive the glory that he deserves and the people of his creation will flourish under his sovereignty. Pray with me. Lord, anger is a, is a difficult thing. We have, been, um, we have not seen many models in our lives of, what, of how, to ang- how to handle anger appropriately. We have been objects of anger unjustly. We have been... Uh, we have seen anger used by powerful people to, to abuse others. We have seen anger for the sake of vengeance. Lord, help us to look to you. Help us to see that you and your anger responded in grace and mercy. You didn't compromise the truth but you didn't remove us from your presence. You sought us out to bring us to a place of repentance and belief and reconciliation. 
Lord, teach us how to be angry. Teach us what to be angry at. Teach us how to respond and behave in our anger. Lord, if if there are those who are listening to this message today who feel that they are under your anger and feel shame and feel judgment and feel um, and feel fear, Lord, I pray that they would hear your words of grace this morning, repent and believe and realize that they are invited into your love to be reconciled to you, to be your child. If there are those who are listening who, who belong to you but don't know how to handle, the, handle their anger well, Lord, teach them. Break their hearts. Make them compassionate people who want to stand for the truth and justice but who want to be known for their love and mercy. Help us, Lord, for you are the only one who can be our true teacher and guide. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.